Hello, everyone. This is Artemis with another episode of Uncivilized. Today, we have Bjorn Olsen with us. Bjorn, how are you doing? Very well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you for coming on. This has been something we've talked about doing for a little bit now since since you and I started chatting. So uh, give a little bit of background is I met Bjorn through one of her previous guests, Jamie. Bjorn, you know, does videography, is, is a self-described neo-primitivist that shares time in Alaska, much like Jamie does. But I want to give Bjorn the platform to talk about himself. So Bjorn, who are you? You know, what are the influences? How'd you get here? What should we know about you? Okay, that's a, you know, that could take all episode, <laughs> but I'll, I'll try to make it brief. Uh, so my, my parents were hippies that moved to Alaska in the early 70s. Um, they were, uh, you know, it's hard to say exactly what their motivations were, but clearly they were looking for a back, back to land, like closest to nature kind of lifestyle. They chose this really kind of harsh, but really beautiful section of the state um, in interior Alaska with, you know, a, a pretty, you know, extreme climate, you know, oftentimes, you know, 60 below was not uncommon in the winter. They didn't have any money. And uh, they when they first moved it together, my dad came first and then met my mom and then came back uh, pregnant with me. They uh, were squatting an abandoned trapper's cabin that was just like a single room a log cabin, you know, very small uh, uh, cabin. And uh, my dad had a trap line and, you know, they were living just this pretty subsistence lifestyle. And then the BLM, uh, when I, after I was born, uh, the Bureau of Land Management uh, evicted us. And the funny story that I always tell is that, you know, the, is the story that was told to me is that the guy, they sent in this young, you know, like maybe intern or whatever guy to do this, you know, kind of thankless job of kicking people out. Um, of this cabin and I was in a little crib that my dad had made and he didn't realize that there was a baby. And so he comes in and kind of, you know, finally, you know, lands his plane, you know, gets to the point of that, you know, we had to kick rocks out of there. And it, right when he finally got the courage to tell my parents that they needed to move out, I started crying and I guess it just like crushed this poor guy. <laughs> so, you know, I've, I've been, I've been a thorn in the side of, you know, federal agencies since, you know, I was a baby, I guess. Um, but then, (laughs) right. Uh, so then we moved a little bit further down, uh, um, the main road there, um, to this little community, uh, really little, you know, with us being there at that time, it made it, you know, maybe around 50 people and bought, um, slice five acres of, of a, a homestead and really did it up. My, you know, built a cabin and built a huge, um, uh, garden and uh, goat barn corral. And so we had, you know, chickens and eggs and milk and then, you know, hunting. Um, and uh, we had a fish wheel. I'm not sure if your listeners are aware of, you know, some of our sub- salmon subsistence practices in Alaska, but a fish wheel is a contraption that you place in the river and it scoops um, as the salmon are running and deposits them into a uh, into like a trough and so in the morning you go you know harvest salmon and the salmon are running that way um so that's the way you know that's the way i got my start in life so you know the the concepts of primitivism you know are kind of like baked in to my dna and then um later we moved to valdez which is like a coastal town and not you know too terribly far away and What's significant about that move is that in that community, there was this kind of like outdoorsy 
adventuring kind of crowd, ice climbing, ski mountaineering, kayaking, that kind of stuff. And I got really inspired by those people in my teen years. And so and that so, goes, so that kind of goes beyond the typical, what it comes to be with being a rural Alaskan is not just, oh, this is my life, but making like a leisure, leisurely lifestyle out of it. Yeah, I, I guess that that would be a way of framing it. Uh, for me, what I saw it as is a way to explore, you know, having an excuse almost to mm-hmm. explore. And so, okay. the, you know, each of those disciplines like mountaineering or kayaking or whatever, um, they, they, you know, you have to learn the skill itself. And then once you have those skills, then you kind of can unlock wilderness, you know, have wilderness experiences in ways that you can't if you're just a novice, right? Um, So I really enjoyed that kind of, you know, for each of those disciplines, you know, really digging into it. And like the kayak, for instance, is, uh, you know, something that I really went down the rabbit hole with in terms of like not only learning how to do it, but learning how indigenous people did it and really learning about, you know, the fact that in Alaska is only in the 1950s that the last practitioner of a kayak, uh, you know, of the skill that has been, you know, in the circumpolar for 10,000 years was lost 1950s and mm. there's only like a generation that does that didn't know how to do it and yet that technology it makes so much sense that it did not go extinct and it's now being revitalized and you know so i you know like that's been you know part of this kind of uh mentality you know with these kinds of uh disciplines is you know the other big thing that i do these days are these long human-powered winter trips um you know all throughout you know you know thousands of miles of alaskan trails and that again is like pulling on the legacy of winter being the time for migration and to visit and to meet people and so you know i have this like incredible network of friends all throughout alaska in rural places that nobody goes to, nobody gets to see. And when you show up to these places by human power, it completely changes the dynamic of that, you know, because the other people, the other Westerners or white people or whatever that visit these villages, they're usually there, you know, with some state agency, you know, mental health or, you know, clinicians or teachers or whatever. But, you know, when we show up, putting in the time, effort, energy, learning that landscape, there's a different dynamic with those kind of relationships. So anyway, I'm kind of jumping all over the place. But, you know, so adventure has been a huge component in my life. Uh, Kind of rekindling subsistence gathering, you know, and trying to deepen that has been a part of my adult life. Um, Trying to, you know, make as much of my annual dietary consumption come from my own, you know, from my efforts, right? Um, th- uh, that's a big part of my identity. Then, you know, again, kind of telling this whole backstory, you know, so fast forward, I um, moved to Homer, uh, which is another coastal community, you know, as an adult um, in 2008. And I had been in a kind of an adventure hedonist for a long time, living in a dry cabin in the mountains, climbing mountains and sea kayaking and working as little as possible to kind of fund that, you know, that hedonistic lifestyle and starting to kind of feel this uh, sense of guilt about, you know, like that I was living such a wonderful life, um, having all the time in the world to read under my, you know, oil lamp or candlelight, uh, you know, living this just super, 
you know, basic life, which is all I need, but also kind of feeling this uh, guilt about knowing that the world was on fire and it was being, you know, destroyed by, you know, in Alaska, you know, there's, you know, pick your poison, you know, we got overfishing, we've got, you know, resource extraction, we've got massive oil and gas development, on and on and on down the list. And all kind of like on the heels of this kind of like colonial mindset, um, you know, but being packaged in new, you know, more politically correct ways, but still the the same, out, you know, outcome. So I was really inspired by, you know, Dave Foreman and, um, you know, kind of the earth first sort style of direct action. But when I, so when I moved to Homer, I was looking for a way to engage in, you know, trying to, you know, get involved with environmental causes. And there's absolutely, as far as I can tell, nothing uh, radical, you know, going on in Alaska. There is a lot of environmentalism, and there's a lot of work that's being done, but it's in this kind of, you know, pretty progressive, pretty tame, you know, write your congressman kind of, you know, style um, activism mm -hmm. or sign a petition or whatever, whatever. What do you think so, makes, I'm sorry, what do you think makes... Alaska that way, or do you think it's not any particularly different than like the so-called you know mainland of the United States that it just it, we tend towards this liberal reformism, or do you think there's a particular expression of that that's unique in Alaska? I I don't think that it's novel to Alaska. I could be wrong. I think that you know we just don't have a big enough population base for you know more radical people to actually get together you know so okay. and that's just my hunch i could be wrong but you know if, if you live in you know eugene or you live in seattle or you know wherever and you you know you you write a zine about radical politics you're probably going to find an audience um and and then you might make allies but i don't know you know i haven't figured out how to do you know like i haven't seen that happen yet in alaska and i i kind of have a hunch that it might be something that is burgeoning but it needs you know it needs somebody to actually kind of step up um and kind of like allow themselves to be that you know the the tip you know like you know of, of course as an anarchist i don't you know like believe in like leaders and tips of the spears but you need somebody to rally around or at least a, you need cause a spark of some kind yeah, you need a spark exactly and okay. so far i'm not you know i'm not seeing that um, okay. But I do sense that there are a lot of people that are, you know, feeling disaffect, you know, di that the that the progressivist kind of like, you know, um, Melu is pretty, you know, uh, wanting. So then anyway, just to wrap up the whole story. So when I moved, moved to Homer, I really was looking for a community and looking for a, an outlet. And I eventually joined a couple different uh, environmental nonprofits. One of them like really fit this particular niche. It's called ground truth trekking. And the idea is, is that you do these human powered trips to learn about natural resource issues or climate issues or cultural issues. And then you produce media when you're done with the trip that in, it, it, it is hopefully in, inspiring um, for the audience to engage with because of the you know the wilderness adventure aspect of it so you look at that as we, what we always called is like the you know, if you want to get your kids to eat broccoli you put cheese on it right so it was called the cheese and broccoli model of you know we do these like pretty radical you know human powered expeditions and document it in one form or another and then you produce some media at the back end 
And but at the same time, once you get the audience engaged in the adventure, then you engage them in the particular issues that are going on in this area. So the first film you know, that I did was a three part human powered expedition of over a thousand miles. And what I was looking at was this absolutely unknown, but if it's if it is permitted, it'll be the largest open pit gold mine in the world. And it's in indigenous lands in Western Alaska. And it's also in this area of Alaska that's called the Mercury Belt. So if this open pit mine is developed, there will be more mercury that will be a byproduct waste that will come out of the ground than the gold that they're is seeking. That the, is that the, what is it called, the Donlin Gold Project, or is that something else? That is. I'm really impressed that you know that. Yeah. I will pretend that I didn't Google it while you were talking. <laughs> hey, well, I yeah, heard so. it before. I've heard it before, but I had to make sure it was the same thing. Because I know there's other, like, obviously, Alaska is this a lot of bit of word like last frontier kind of wild west that there's a lot of open land you know as some might say undeveloped real estate so to speak yeah. and there's a lot of projects like this mine right that people are opposed to or should be opposed to so i know there's a lot of similar projects as well absolutely yep yep and especially and especially now um you know with the um the inflation reduction act you know and biden's administration you know trying to you know um get us on the green energy path um you know a lot of these projects are being fast-tracked because alaska has a lot of rare earth minerals we have a lot of copper we have a lot of these you know transition metals and you know so yeah um it's, one of, it's mm -hmm. again one of these like kind of funny things about the kind of the hypocrisy of the left you know is that you know, not seeing the complete picture. And, you know, of course, I'm no Republican, but Jesus Christ, the Democrats are the ones that are like opening the floodgates for more resource extraction in Alaska, you know, right. way more, way more effectively than if they were Republicans that were leading the charge, because if it was Republicans leading the charge, then at least the progressivists would be fighting it, you know? Oh, it's a beautiful thing, right? It's the party line that the Democrats are in favor of it, but if the Republicans did it, they'd be like, oh, no, look at, you know, they point to all the things that the Republicans point to sometimes that we point to, right? But it's them doing yeah. it. So, you know, don't look at that. Yeah, you just ignore it. It's not, yeah, you just ignore it. You pretend like it's a non-issue because it's or, or you do the more intellectually dishonest thing and say, well, actually, once we get to point, we're on point A, but when we get to point D, all those issues go, you know what I mean? It's like somehow we'll wave our hand and suddenly all these things go away because the promise of progress and industry, right? The ongoing myth. Right. Right. Exactly. The ongoing myth. <laughs> well, well put. Yeah. Yeah. So d just to then to full, fully wrap up the whole little bio part. So that, that first film, it, it was very much an amateurish effort, but I was really proud of the effort that we put into it and really became captivated by the, um, using filmmaking as my, storytelling device and really incorporating the skill set that I have of being a wilderness adventurer as a way to get myself into these unique bioregions and cultural places within Alaska that few, if any, ever get to see and experience and to really try to uphold the great values that so many indigenous you know, uh, cultures in Alaska have 
to offer, you know, the sustainable, the subsistence, the, and that they're very much on the front lines of what resource extraction leads to. And especially in the case with, you know, climate change, you know, like the, the impacts of, you know, Alaska native communities and, you know, climate change, especially the coastal communities or the, in the YK Delta, you know, they, they're mm-hmm. the ones that are being most impacted by this. So filmmaking then really became my, uh, our, you know, my kind of um, pathway to sharing, you know, this kind of stuff. And then, but for a long time, my climate activism kind of really stepped up. I was frustrated by the fact that, you know, we have all this amazing research that happens in Alaska, you know, especially in the uh, Arctic. But also in my neck of the woods, the Kenai Peninsula, there's a tremendous amount of research going into climate change. And, uh, and yet the statewide conversation in any of the kind of like environmental circles was really kind of shadowed by the one massive copper uh, deposit that, you know, is world famous pebble mine. Um, and hardly anybody was talking about climate change mitigation and we're an oil and gas state right and so uh for a little while i had some funding and i started this campaign called alaskans know alaskans no climate change and mm. trying to build this wider uh appreciation for that that this is happening and that we should be looking for ways to mitigate it and this is something that now you know i'm a little bit embarrassed by but I, I did kind of get seduced into a lot of the progressivist kind of the solution based, you know, s- scenarios. And then I'll fully land my plane here, the arc. <laughs> <laughs> so then about five years ago, I started, even though I'm like fully, you know, this very active person raised by hippie parents, eat a lot of like, you know, single ingredient whole foods. I, you know, was also eating kind of like a normal standard diet too. And about five years ago, I was noticing that I was getting quite a bit heavier every year without changing anything. I was just feeling like shit in a lot of ways and finally decided to go into the clinic and get a checkup. I got a blood panel done. And when the results came back, it was just like this huge slap in the face. I I had insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome. I was overweight. And, you know, there were all these things that were like going wrong with me. And I freaked out about it. Like I was not happy. Uh, and then the solution of, you know, we've got prescriptions for each of those, you know, s- symptoms didn't sit with me. And so I fell down this just incredible rabbit hole, uh, you know, and got really lucky. Like I, you know, there was no single resource that, you know, like there was nobody that turned me on. I had to really do a lot of digging and sleuthing. And then I finally found something that really worked. And it's, you know, it's not surprising to any of your listeners, but it's, you know, an ancestrally appropriate, um, you know, kind of primal and for me, very, you know, like primal diet. And, you know, there's the subjective and the objective, you know, so I feel like in my 20s now, health wise, like my energy levels, my knee no longer hurts, my rashes went away, I lost a bunch of weight. But then the blood work is, you know, that that you you can't make that up, right? Like here's one panel and then two years later you go back and all the things that were out of the range are back in the healthy range. So that 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 really struck me uh like a lightning bolt. And and I I all of a sudden 
started then really asking the question of like, how is it that this is so efficacious? And it's not just to me, you know, like there are, you know, like I'm in this kind of like ancestral health, you know, community online anyway. And, you know, there are all these people that are reversing type two diabetes, re reversing, you know, all their metabolic diseases, reversing um, all kinds of uh, chronic inflammation and autoimmune disorders and on and on and on. And then, it, you know, it begs the questions like, well, how is this so efficacious? It's so efficacious, obviously, because we are an evolved species and we have certain inputs that our bodies are, you know, we have not caught up to modernity, you know, genetically. And mm -hmm. if, if we live in the mismatch, there's going to be hell to pay. And the statistics, you know, support this, you know, it's like, I was actually just, I'm working on my book project about this right now. So I was like looking up some of these numbers this morning. It's like, you know, uh, more than one in three American adults are overweight and two in five are obese. Uh, you know, like the, the, the anxiety disorders affect nearly 20% of Americans. One in five suffer from mood disorders. Like these are perturbations. These are all the diseases of civilization. Um, so that, you know, it wasn't just the fact that the diet had this effect on me, which it did, but that really affected my whole philosophy and is what, you know, I, I'd been dancing around, you know, green anarchy for a long time and always been intrigued. But I kind of never really thought that, you know, it was a position to advocate for because, again, I was stuck in this kind of progressivist world of, well, how do you scale something like that? Um, so for me, though, that changed everything. And it says, well, you know, if we if humans are not going to be healthy and optimal, then what's the point of anything? Right. So that it just anyway, it switched my whole thinking. And then furthermore, one more thing and I'll stop talking. Um, is that concurrently, you know, as I was getting healthier and better, I was invited to one of the most remote villages in Alaska, um, this place called Little Diomede that's like right where Alaska and Siberia nearly touch just below the Arctic Circle. It's this teeny little island, three miles by two mile wide. And you can like shoot big Diomede with a high powered rifle. It's like three miles away, but that's, that's Russia, right? So it is this mm. extremely remote place. And because of its remoteness and because of its abundance of natural resources, which is primarily the walrus, but they, you know, get millions of seabirds nesting there in the summer that they harvest and crabs and eggs and on and on and on. You know, it's this resource rich area. They really, because of their remoteness, they kind of missed a whole bunch of the acculturation or colonization that most other Alaskan Native communities um, went through, you know, you know, some going back into the late 1800s, some, you know, into the 1950s and 60s. But for the most part, most Alaskan Native villages are, you know, pretty well westernized. You know, they get Western education. They, you know, there, there's some kind of, you know, like grant funded, usually economy that, you know, keeps people in cash. You know, that people still practice subsistence, but, you know, they also have, you know, refrigerators and freezers and go to the store to buy, you know, frozen pizzas and stuff too. Whereas Diomede didn't have as much of those conveniences because it is so remote, so difficult to get those things there. And, but they're, they are right now having to make this shift from a more primal traditional way of life because of climate change and how that's affecting sea ice and how it affects sea ice changes everything for them. Like sea ice is the foundation 
that their whole universe is like centered around. And so to have this kind of like opportunity to see, you know, this this culture in transition while I'm making my own kind of um, connections about primitivism has really also further kind of like um, informed my now, you know, worldview of anarcho-primitivism. Mm-hmm. And now I'll stop introducing myself. <laughs> <laughs> so and with that, can you talk a bit of how, I guess, what your day-to-day actions look like in relation to primitivism in the colonial project in Alaska? Because you talked about the videography. And from my understanding, that's called Mionier. And I know I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Mionier. I know people pronounce it differently. Mionier, film and photography. Is that like an avenue, so to speak, for lack of a better word, your activism? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, but there's a, there's two parts to the, my uh, filmmaking. There's the self-funded passion projects and then there's mm-hmm. like con- contract work. And, and so thankfully I've never had to say no to anybody that's reached out to me to make films based on ideologically, you know, like, you know, if it's like some commercial project or somebody wants to make some, you know, visit Alaska, you know, documentary, you know, I, I have no interest. But but the people that I do get work for are either tribal, you know, native organizations or um, environmental, you know, um, organizations. And so that's kind of like that's my how I kind of pay my bills. And mm-hmm. I am I'm almost always ideologically, you know, fine with the, those projects. You know, it's like like working for the just to give in a couple of examples, you know, the United Tribes of Bristol Bay is a tribal consortium based in the Bristol Bay region of Alaska, representing, you know, the three cultural um, indigenous groups from that area. And they have throughout that huge region of the state, 80% of their population opposes the Pebble Mine project, right? So they hire me to go you know, film when testimonies are being given in the villages and then to compile that into, you know, something to get out to the world, to let people know that there is this strong indigenous opposition to, you know, a mine. So that's an example of like work that I do that is not necessarily, you know, that's not something that I, I you know, woke up and wrote the, you know, the treatment for and went out and found funding and did my on my own, um, but that I get to do for others. And uh, and that Diomede film was another example. I was reached out to by that tribe to go there and to tell their story about how climate change is affecting, you know, their traditional cultural ways of life. But then I have my own self-funded passion projects. Um, and yeah, very much they're, you know, uh, often very, you know, activist oriented. Um, yeah. Hmm. Gotcha. Very cool. Yeah, I just know the... And the two that come to mind are the short interview you did with John and then that one, which I believe that's the one you showed me, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. And so both of those just so, especially the, you know, the John one, just so simple, but first of all, very like visually high quality and like you can just, it seems so professional. It's not just like someone stuck a camera in front of someone and said, talk, you know? Um, you know, it's funny because um, before I, I didn't know that I was going to be in this you know, the reason I was in the States was for another job I have with a geologist friend. Um, He got a big NSF grant to study landslides because that's another crazy thing that's happening in Alaska because of climate change. Our um, glaciers are retreating so fast 
and it's uh and, and the mountain permafrost is melting so fast that there's the potential for these like ungodly catastrophic landslides that could wipe out entire communities and so he's you know he's a geologist studying this and so last spring um we needed to go down to uh hang out with some of his colleagues that are studying landslides in California and it was like I never go to the states and but the first thought I had was like I need to try to connect with John on this trip because we were going to be going through Eugene and part of the reason that I really was so well a I just you know wanted to meet him but b was because I you know sleuthed the internet you know the YouTubes and such and I never found a, you know, like a high quality, you know, interview with him that kind of really just like succinctly stated the position of what is green anarchy. And, mm. uh, you know, it, I, we, I had like 45 fucking minutes. It was so lame, you know, and I had to like just show up, set my, all my equipment up. And it was so impersonal, you know, but God, he's such a gracious human. And, you know, mm. uh, you know understood that those were the parameters that I was under. And, uh, you know, I, I gave him a bunch of smoked salmon and, you know, tried to like do my best to like <laughs> act like an actual human being. But I did have an agenda, you know, like I had an agenda. There is not a good quality interview, you know, a video interview that I've found. You know, there's some great discussions, but they're, you know, unless you're really into the topic already, you're not going to sit through an hour long, you know, like lecture. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, what you, you know, you and I might fit into that, you know, demographic for for sure. But anyway, you know, thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying so. Like, I, I'm, I, I, you know, I would, I would love to have, uh, you know, spent many days with him and filming in all kinds of contexts and, but maybe mm -hmm. another time. Yeah. And so I want to go back to your commentary on the diet. Do you call that, I, you know, some people call it the paleo diet, the caveman diet the meat, you know, whatever it is, um, what would you classify that as? Or do you think it doesn't fit nicely into any of those categories? Uh, hmm, it, it, that's an interesting question. So, yeah, I, the, the terms that I, you know, the term that I started using uh, initially was um, an ancestral diet. And then... Right, right. And then um, there's, a, there's one of the doctors, you know, that's in this space uh, that I, I like the term that he uses, which is a proper human diet. Um, mm. and it, it kind of, you know, there's, you know, there's this funny thing, you know, that people will say, you know, it's like the, you know, keto diet or a carnivore diet or whatever. It's like, oh, the new fad, right. The new fad diet. And when you look at what, what, how do you determine a fad, right? A fad is something that, you know, makes a splash, makes it, you know, gets everybody's attention, they follow it for a while and then it usually, you know, fizzles out and then there's some new fad. So, you know, a proper human diet though, or a carnivore diet or a ketogenic diet, you know, the, the, this is what our species diet has been, you know, before we were a species, you know, it was, be, it was the diet of right. our predecessors, you know, Homo erectus and Homo habilis and you know, there's even, you know, signs that Australopithecus was using, you know, hand axes to break bones open. So we're talking like 3 million years. This is the kind of food, you know, our species has been eating. And it's what affected... Don't let the, the vegan primitivists let you hear, you know, get yeah, you hearing that. It's so, it's so tragic, you know, because I know that vegans 
have their heart in the right place. Like we are on the same team, do least harm, right? You don't want to do harm. And when you see industrially processed, you know, and raised animal feedlots, fucking A, burn it down, burn it to the ground. You know, that is a horrible model, Mm -hmm. but that does not, you know, discount the fact that humans require a certain kinds of essential nutrition and that if you don't get it, you develop deficiencies. And those deficiencies lead to any number of these modern diseases of civilization that we're seeing everybody suffer from. If you if you omit single whole ingredient foods and animal-based foods from your diet, kind of by default, you end up eating a processed diet, you know, a processed food diet. And the, where that food comes from is also ecologically destructive. You know, soy and corn and wheat fields, they are the destruction of not just an animal, but the entire ecosystem. There's like nothing, there's a video online that's really interesting. It's like uh, uh, um, kind of like a thought experiment almost of like, you take a cow pasture and you know, you hear, you know, then this is like a regenerative cow pasture, right? So there's trees and there's, you know, native plants and then you have grazing cattle and the amount of ambient noise you know you hear the birds twerping and you hear the crickets and you hear you know like there's all this sound and then there's the, the contrast video is the middle of a you know of a, a soy field and it's like deathly silent there's nothing living there except for this one you know crop of civilization so there's no such and thing i know as- some vegans i know some vegans argue this kind of like well you need you know in the modern system of course some vegans you know they vary but like some of them are like well if we're gonna have this system uh then all you're doing is removing one layer of the energy right which is the the animals right the, the plants are already there we're gonna eat them and i get that argument that you're removing part of it it's a damage control thing but it's like sure but like you there is no long-term sustainability so like i have two vegan primitivist friends who are vegan because of the context of meat consumption if you're not hunting it Mm-hmm. right is different right if i talk about them like if i talk about you or jamie to them they're like yeah like that's different uh-huh. right because they're off they're eating it off the land it's wild as opposed to their opposition is the the store-bought meat i guess yeah yeah uh, which but, i can understand that a little bit yeah and i absolutely you know completely empathize with that position but again not to be a prick um, but you gotta, you gotta, we gotta talk about some of the holes in that argument in that, you know, all industrial food production is evil. Let me just say, state that right off the bat. This is my position. Mm-hmm. All industrial food production is evil. And that doesn't matter to me if it's soy or if it's, you know, pigs, all of it's evil. So the problem with all the thing that they all have in common is that they're not working in a regenerative form. So the issue that we have when we talk about, you know, let's let's switch, like, you know, this is like the eat lancet diet and the kind of like eat for the climate diet. It's basically like eliminate meat. You know, it's like this little teeny sliver that they allow for in their pie chart of what you're supposed to eat. And then it's like mostly fruits and veg, grains, you know, you know, whatever the standard thing, everybody knows what you're supposed, you know, what the mainstream advice tells you what you're supposed to eat. Now, the question that needs to be asked by everyone is where does the nitrogen come from that supplies those fruits and vegetables and uh, grains? In the 
well, 1950s is when we first started, you know, like as a civilization waking, waking up and recognizing that the population base and the food resource demand was reaching a critical point because we were running out of nitrogen, which right now we're almost about mm-hmm. phosphorus. The way that nitrogen had been replenished, you know, I mean, there's many ways, but there's like crop rotation, but it's also in partnership with grazing you know grazing animals you need their cow shit you need their you know you need their piss their manure and all this kind of like the reciprocal process of life what we're doing now what we've done since then the green revolution is cheated the system making nitrogen from fossil fuels completely extracted all of the life out of the soil you know the the soil of the midwest the breadbasket used to be like over a meter thick these just long long roots that went all the way down that's so much carbon that has been sequestered and into the system and we're creating we've created this monocrop paradigm and that we're continuing you know even the you know people that are promoting you know oh we got to think about climate change because this is an epic problem what do we do as individuals what are we t- being told to do as individuals eat less meat eat more veg how do you grow veg if you don't have the ability to naturally put the nitrogen back into the cycle? That's not being discussed in our terms. So there, there's the whole regenerative ranching movement that is happening in, in you know, all over the world, being led by, you know, Alan Savroy, but many others that are trying to get this across to people that the soil is desertifying. Like there will be mass suffering if we continue to go down this contemporary path. There has to be a constriction of the population at some point, no matter what, because we've cheated the system and we've allowed for way more people than what the resource base can actually support nutritionally. But, you know, it's an unfortunate thing that I think the vegans are not uh, grappling with is that you have only have two choices for nitrogen and it's like you know regenerative which includes animals and whether or not you choose to eat them that's up to you to say we have to get rid of animals is like suicidal because the only other option is the fossil fuel nitrogen and that is also suicidal that is like desertifying the you know the 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 topsoil and so yeah Mm -hmm. we have to so there's you know there's all these components the book the sacred cow um, is just a, I, I just cannot recommend it enough because it silos this conversation, you know, and it says here's what here's what happens when you have you know an omnivore or a carnivore uh, discussion with a you know plant based vegan person is that the um, the conversation you know if, once you make the case that there is essential nutrition that all humans need that you can only get from animals once you finally landed that plane then the you know the plant-based advocates will switch the conversation to uh you know either you know sustainability or they'll switch it to ethics and so what the book does is it just breaks those down into their three silos and says we're going to talk about all the reasons why humans need essential nutrition that you can only get from animals and then once that plane has been landed then they switch to the ecological side of it like how do you do you know, it's called the case for better meat, that all meat production, all, all animal husbandry needs to improve. The industrial model of everything is broken, but this one can be a part of the solution in terms of like drawing carbon back down out of the atmosphere, regenerating the soil, turning the, you know, what is now, you know, wheat and corn and soy fields back into prairie grasslands, capturing all that carbon. Mm-hmm. 
And then the ethical side of it is its own standalone conversation. And, and it, it's, it's brilliantly laid out, you know, and it really coupled with Liara Keith's um, vegetarian myth. I think that anybody that has an open mind um, should read those books because they're very profound. And if we are really serious about asking the question of what, what is, what does sustainability look like? You, you have to have all of the inputs. And right now we're, most people are missing many of the kind of the key, you know, ingredients to have that conversation to even start to, you know, speak eloquently about it and, you know when you have like the un gotcha. put, talking about the eat lancet diet they're just missing enormous you know factors that humans there's never been a society found on the earth that was vegan veganism is an experiment that we're doing right now and for many people it's not going well you know women lose their periods people start losing their hair you know osteoporosis you know fragility uh, muscle loss sar sarcopenia on and on, you know, there are these like people that are not doing well because it's an, uh, an untested human experiment. Right. Right. And I find, I find that, you know, funny. So I actually got a comment two weeks ago that I just noticed on the John Zerzan interview we did from, from a primitivist that's vegan. At least that's my understanding. They said, what is civilization? Essentially it is the bullying of other species, nature, and ourselves. This bullying began when we went against our herbivorous nature and started systematically unnecessarily aggressing upon other species, which civilization called hunting. This bullying changed us and set the foundation for all forms of bullying that followed agriculture, governments, forced labor, economies, religions, and technology. Primitivism is simply abandoning the bullying mindset and all the systems that were created out of it, essential to this abandoning of the specious mindset and the absurd notion of man the hunter. And I love what Jamie calls these people, anarcho-primativists, because that's what you're talking, like, our, our nature? Like, whose nature? Because uh, the, the evidence is very fucking obvious that pro, like pre-homo sapien species were hunting. Like, that's not debatable, that you can't argue that. And this idea, it's like, we're going to return to a... a, a character of previous species because you have people like Rhea who you know I get along with Rhea better than other people who argues actually human homo sapiens are herbivorous but in the same vein argues millions of years before homo sapiens we started hunting and to me those are two contradictory statements you can't believe both of those things yeah it's so puzzling it's like really a, a, such an interesting puzzle and what and for me it's been so fascinating to really kind of steep myself in the the evolutionary biology and you know obviously the anthropology and the archaeology of why i have had this profound you know like life-changing um intervention by just basically only eating what fish and game, you know, and some eggs, um, you know, it's had this enormous impact on me. Um, and, you know, so part of this story, you know, that if anybody, you know, when they say humans are herbivorous, there are so many things that are worth pointing out why that's just not true and how the, the distinct physiological adaptations that we have and that we evolved you know, the, and the adaptations that we evolved away from. So let's take, you know, our, you know, we won't take our closest, you know, relatives of chimpanzees because they're a little bit complicated. They like, they do eat some meat. They do, you know, do some hunting. But let's just talk about the gorilla instead. A gorilla's rib cage 
faces out nearly horizontal, you know, like it because they've got this just enormous gut. They have, they're not, they're not ruminants. You know, they don't have multiple chambers. They just have one big gut and they eat, you know, um, you know, uh, um, foliage all day long. Like they consume just ungodly amounts of poundage of, you know, roughage every day. And what they have, because of that big, enormous gut, they have an enormous biota. You know, they've got these, um, their, um, you know, gut biomes, gut biome is so much more plentiful than our own. And it's, that is, that is the symbiotic relationship that makes it possible for them to extract nutrition. And the way they're extracting nutrition is that their microbiome is breaking down what is for us insoluble fiber. Humans cannot digest fiber. Just, you know, the insoluble fiber just passes right through us. But for a gorilla, it is broken down and it is turned into butyrate, which is a short chain fatty acid. And so gorillas are in a state of ketosis, even though they're eating plants only. So what happened, you know, the, the, you know, when we, when we came out of the trees because of climate change some three and a half million years ago and started having to walk around in the savanna, you know, walking upright, we had these little 400 cc brains as homo habilis, and we still had, you know, a, you know, a kind of a more varied um, diet. But that is when we first started extracting nutrition from, and you know, there's this is like archaeology 101. Like, there's nothing, you know, at all controversial about this. We find the stone tools, and you find the the cut marks on bones. The Homo habilis was their their, you know, the first Homo, the first in the line of the Homo, was exploiting. They were they were scavengers. So you know, some bigger, toothier, you know, animal would take down the prey. Then like the hyenas would come in and strip it off. But then we would go in with rocks and break open skulls and bones and get access to the marrow. And then what we see in the, you know, the archaeological record is that brain size starts going off. We go from 400 CC to like 1200 CC in no time, peaking at 1500 CC 10,000 years ago. You know, this just meteoric and and furthermore, while the brain is growing, this metabolically hungry organ, the guts are shrinking. So we still have vestigial, you know, um, appendixes. That was like part of our, you know, our line, you know, our evolutionary past of when we were more herbivorous. Here's another thing to consider. We have stomach pH of 1.5. That's like vulture. You know, that, that is scavenger pH. Ruminant animals, cows, and others, they're, they're like 4.5. You know, way more um, basic than our, our own. Right. This, this right. means we can, not only can we process, you know, meat in our stomach, we can actually process, you know, fermented putrescent meat too, right? This is, this, this is, mm-hmm. this is what vultures can do. So that, and, and there's many, you know, like that we have, you know, our eyes are forward facing, that's predators, you know, um, prey animals, you know, are eyes on the side of their head so they can see the predators, you know, in a more, you know, 360 view. You know, there's just one thing after the next that, you know, we, we are, and it's, you know, and I, I, again, I relate so much to people's like, you know, their humanitarian impulse of passivity and, you know, like kindness. And you look a sweet animal in the eye and you're like, the last thing in the world you want to do is like, 
run it through with the spear and eat it. You know, like you want it to have live a long, healthy, you know, functioning life. But there is no there is no food system on Earth that does not involve death. And the question then becomes what kind of death? Right. So if you're talking about death from the vegan world, it's a death by insecticides and pesticides. You know, everything to produce your, you know, soy tofu burger is, uh, you know, coming from industrial agriculture, which is causing ungodly amounts of death. Whereas, you know, when I shoot a caribou, it's a quick death, you know, when I, you know, and, and even a domestic right. animal, you know, I, you know, shot many goats, you know, right between the eyes and they don't know it happened. They're just one minute they're alive and loved and the next minute they're just gone. Right. That's the best we can mm-hmm. do. You can have a good death or you can have, you know, ecocidal death. I was going to say, like, it is, I was going to say, it's either, you know, some people are like, well, you know, I remember I was watching, might have been the Hadza, but I could be wrong, but it is one of the African hunter-gatherer tribes. They they took down, I believe, a gazelle, a, a young gazelle, and they were stabbing its ear to make it cry, to make the mother come. And I remember a vegan was like, well, see, they're torturing them. I was like, I'm sorry, not fucking comparable to, like, what is happening on a global, like, not, yeah. you know, and again, that's our we're socialized into that. I understand why that would make someone uncomfortable. It makes me like, I can admit it makes me uncomfortable because I'm not around that. Yep. I'm just not, you know, and I don't know why it's so hard for people to admit. And what I hate is groups like PETA. Uh, they say, well, you know, actually we're not adapted to eat meat because our short canines and our nails. And they argue, it's like, well, our ancestors, you had to use tools and therefore we're not, we're, we're not able to eat. We shouldn't be able to eat meat because we needed tools. I was like, or, like to me, that doesn't make sense because that's just our adaption. Right. We didn't need all those things because we had the tool. Our ancestors did have those. Like if you look at erectus, it does have larger canines, right? If you look back even further, Hebelus has the bigger canines. You know, Australopithecus and them. They they do have the more typical predator traits. But just because we don't have those doesn't mean we can't eat meat. It yeah. just uh, like I don't get that argument. Yeah, you know. Yeah. It just doesn't hold up. Well, right. And, and it's like, like, yeah, because we've adapted, we've adapted to the tools, but the tools allowed us to eat meat. And now we are made to eat meat. And that's not to say we can't eat plants. Hunter gatherers are great because they, they don't give a fuck. They're going to eat whatever if it's edible. Mm-hmm. Right. But on the other hand, and I've argued with vegans about this, there is very obviously a predisposition towards favoring meat. Absolutely. Every hunter gatherer tribe or group sees the value of meat now meat for many of them right it's different where you you know in alaska obviously the further north you go but in these areas like in, you know it probably varies across space and time and i don't talk about hunter gatherers as a monolithic identity right um yeah but plant plant food serves to be a large you know sometimes up to 50 to 65 percent of a hunter gatherer diet but but the meat is valued so deeply that even, you know, and then just the whole division of labor, even women and young children will hunt if it's available to them because they like the meat. Absolutely. That is like, they just did that. And we are like, well, that's cultural. I was like, how fucking far back do you have to go to acknowledge that maybe that's what we're supposed to do? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, right. You know. Yeah. And, you know, and another so, point, yeah. there's like two things I wanted to add there. Um, but to the last one is that, you know, and many of these, you know, contemporary foraging societies that have escaped, you know, acculturation, um, 
their habitat is markedly like reduced. So it's like you can't you can't look at even in the you know 40s, 50s, 60s. You know these ethnographers were pointing out that you know the San were you know like relegated to the boondocks. You know and and had much less access to what would have been you know their um, you know previous state because of colonization right and because of ranching and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. so you know it's like you can't really look at contemporary people and say well you know they eat this way now so that must be the way they always ate maybe but maybe not too right um right we can't know yeah right but then the other thing that i wanted to um touch on there you're talking about you know this you know having this you know um gut reaction and it's understandable because I would have it too. If I if I you know was watching a Hadza, either in in real life or a video of it, of them you know making the the kid bleat to draw in the mother, like that that would affect me. You know, like I you know I would accept it. I would you know I wouldn't come in with my preconceived bias. You know, of like oh well, this is you know cruel. You know, wouldn't judge them for it, but it would affect me. Like I, I it's not any tactic that I would want to, you know, come up with and employ on my own. But Marshall Sollins has this great interview um, where he starts his interview talking about, uh, I think it was a, uh, a Fijian culture. Um, and they, and he was talking about how he, the chief wanted to give him an offering and the offering, but the offering, the, the actual proud offering that he would have liked to give him the missionaries had now told them they couldn't do anymore. And it was, um, I think it was like a virgin woman or a cooked man. And both of those things were the, like the epitome of a chief's offering. And he goes on to relate the cultural significance of both of those things. And then, and, you know, and knowing full well that a Western audience is going to like think, wait, a cannibal, you know, meal of a human being or, you know, like the, the, the offering of sex from some young, you know, virginal woman like that. How abhorrent. But he does this really, you know, like fa- fascinating job of talking the audience through a cultural perspective that you had never considered. And he kind of like leads you to like understanding how a cultural group would come to that kind of, you know, opinion that the, this is the best gift you can offer. And the point that I, I guess I'm trying to make here is that we we have this dualistic thing going on in, in you know especially in Alaska there's this great burgeoning conversation around decolon decolonization I'm like so mm-hmm. happy that it is finally happening that we're talking about removing the name Captain Cook from every goddamn thing and you know changing you know we have like all these um, creeks that are named like Squaw Creek. You know, like these like, you know, really fucked up, you know, colonial like racist names um, that are, you know, being like reappropriated and, you know, given indigenous names. And, you know, but it's like it's also a little bit um, wanting too, as far as I can tell. But I guess the, the point that I'm getting at is that. I think that most people do feel that we have overlooked the indigenous perspective you know, we've colonized the world without ever bothering to ask people what their knowledge base was, what their mythologies were, what their cultural practices were. We just steamrolled them and said, you're going to be Christian now, <laughs> you know, or you're going to be, you know, whatever, and you're going to become, uh, you know, capitalist. Um, 
without ever bothering to ask. And yet there's so much wisdom that has been lost. And I think most of us on some level or not know that that's fucked up. And, and, and yet when you're confronted with some of these hard facts, they might be jarring to our, you know, Western worldview. But I think that we need to like look that in the face and embrace it. You know, you, if you, if you believe in, you know, decolonization, you need to go where the evidence go- takes you. You know, you can't just have your politically correct, you know, glasses on, uh, you know, that everything is harmony in, you know, uh, uh, ancestral, you know, societies. Not always the case. You know, like they, they might actually torture little goats to bring the mother out. And that, you know, that's going to be offensive to you. But that's, you know, way more sustainable and way more um, enviable than destroying entire ecosystems to, you know, put the food on your table for example. Right. Right. Exactly. And so I, I find that really interesting. I appreciate you putting it in that way. And it's not to say like every culture does that because I'm sure other cultures on a similar level might be like, you know, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to name any, but I wouldn't be surprised with some cultures who are foraging people might look at that and be like, what the fuck? Yeah. I mean, it's not impossible to consider. And so this idea that they can point to one thing be like, well, that's why it's like, yeah, I'm right. still not comparable. Totally. Like, holy shit. To kind of add to this, you know, there was another Primal Health um, podcast that I was on a while ago, and it really, it, in the lead up to that, I'd kind of like really thought about what I could contribute to that conversation. And, I, you know, I, I feel like, you know, in the kind of this mainstream, you know, so I, I feel like there's this kind of um, these two worldviews that don't really... Um, that haven't fully meshed yet, but I believe that they should. And that's kind of the book project that I'm working on. So we've got this whole ancestral health community, which, you know, quite often it's very, you know, vapid, shallow, vain, you know, like people, you know, jocks that are getting strong, you know, eating meat and bragging about it, you know, is pretty abhorrent. Um, But, um, and so this this guy, he, you know, he's in that kind of spectrum. So uh, let me land that. Let me uh, make my point here. That so we got this kind of like primal anarchy um, perspective, which is the critique of civilization, and that you know w- the the path that we're on is destructive, and what we need to do is you know figure out how we were once human, and 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 re remember this kind of like the lost innate nature that is within us that has been corrupted by civilization. So that's kind of one side of the coin. And then there's this kind of nutritional, you know, uh, ancestral health space. And that's another, you know, kind of different conversation that's siloed. They're not uh, critiquing civilization. They're just looking at how do I make myself as an individual healthy again? And I think that those mm-hmm. two things need to merge. Um, so, right. so the, the, um, but the but the takeaway thing, you know, is so like coming from this kind of like climate activist mentality of like, here we have this global climate crisis and we're all contributing to it. Of course, the billionaires are contributing more than, you know, any average American poor person and definitely more than any third world, you know, person. Um, but still, it is a collective effort. Like all of us are contributing to this problem. And now how do we... I mean, Kevin Tucker... I don't mean to cut you off, but like that instantly reminds me of Kevin Tucker's I am complicit piece. Mm-hmm. If you remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And so, you know, the, on, the, the kind of the, the, the mentality that, you know, the kind of the shift in thinking that I've had over the last few years 
that, you know, originated with this like, you know, dietary intervention, but then that's led me down this, like all these other pathways of thinking, not just the nutritional component, um, is that, you know, when, whenever, so this is like the hopeful optimism kind of piece that I have. And I do share this with John. Like I, I am like hopeful, you know, I'm like, you know, like a epic optimist. I, I refuse to let pessimism and nihilism, you know, rule, rule me. Um, and, and of course I know, you know, I accept that it's probably totally naive, but I, I don't care. Um, but the, the prescription that I am trying to say is that, you know, we have all of these different levers in our own life that we can pull to bring us back in more in harmony with our innate primal nature. And uh, every day there's like new papers that come out you know, of like, you know, in psychology and in parenting and, you know, you know, behavioral health and on and on and on. And the interventions that are effective, if you read the subtext, it says, if you do it like how they did it in the Paleolithic, the subject's condition, whatever it is, improves. And it's, it's, you know, so the point is, is that we have all these different levers. We all know on some level or not, that we need to get, you know, sun on our face. We all know that we need to sleep, you know, a, a, a good amount of sleep every night. We all know that we need community. We need friendships. We need face-to-face, interactive, immersive experiences with our fellow humans. We need this. This is part of our, you know, the worst torture you can provide to a human being is solitary confinement. Like, this is just a known fact. Um you need to have exercise. You need to, you know, you need a variety of kinds of exercise. You need meaningful work. You know, you need to work with your hands. When you're raising, you know, children, those children need you as the parent, but those children also need a community of people. It's not just the role of a mom and a dad in a nuclear family. That's not how we evolved. So on and on and on. I'm just like the the point that I'm trying to get here is that there are all these levers that each of us can learn to start pulling on that trend us back into better alignment with our evolved nature. And mm-hmm. and this is the point where I kind of get to is that I'm pretty sure and then, you know this is me parroting all these you know ancestral health doctors but no no single lever is more powerful than nutrition. Like if you get that one thing right so many other things fall into line. And, you know, one thing that I I can just speak to this one personal experience is that, you know, blood sugar, you know, when you're on a blood sugar roller coaster, which is the standard American diet, you wake up in the morning and you have, you know, oatmeal with, you know, some, you know, maple syrup or whatever for breakfast, you're hungry again by 10. So you have a donut in the break room, you get a Starbucks, you know, latte with tons of fucking sugar in it. And, you know, lunch is, you know, whatever, some other high carby, you know, processed food all day long, your blood sugar is just going up and down and up and down. This is like mood, you know, like a recipe for mood disorders. Like we're not supposed to have that kind of crazy spike and valley, spike and valley, spike and valley. When you level that out with an ancestrally appropriate, you know, proper human diet, all of a sudden, all of these other things mellow out for you. You start to think clearer. And again, there are studies, you know, many studies that prove this. If you take somebody in a high carbohydrate diet context 
and you give them a cognition test, and then you put them on a ketogenic diet for two weeks and you give them the same test, their test scores improve. Cognition improves when you're properly nourished. And so by getting that one thing right, then you can start learning how to tug on all these other levers. And that's what I'm now, you know, like really fascinated by is like looking at my direct friendships and the people that I surround myself with, like independent of the fact that I just want those people in my life and I want to have that experience, I look at it like medicine. I look at these relationships as a part of the recipe of being a proper human. And, you know, and then that goes to, you know, working outside, you know, with my hands and, you know, learning archery or whatever it is, you, you know, you're trying to rekindle this lost uh, humanity that, you know, I think everybody on some level is secretly longing for. They just don't know how to articulate what they're suffering from yet. I want to I want to touch on that because that that reminds me of this anti-primitivist critique is you wouldn't last five days in the woods. You don't know how to start a fire. And it's like, yeah. That's the fucking problem, and John talks about this quite often, particularly in his um, People's History of Civilization, is the constant de-skilling that is required. Totally. Right, this dehumanization, another cognitive machine, it's like, yeah, that's the problem. Is, yeah, theoretically I could teach myself, but with what fucking time? Right. Exactly. Right. And, and, and it's and not what, just, and, and you what, can't just... What time, but also on. what support network, you know, like none of us have, right, you know, there's no prim primal society that was like the lone man hunter, you know, like, fuck, it's always a communal, communal effort. Yeah. And Peter Michael Bauer, you know, I remember I, I asked him forever ago, he was doing like a Q&A thing. I said, how can I learn skills of my own? He's like, get community because individualism isn't going to solve your problem or Absolutely. something to that effect. He's like smash individuality or individuality. Individualism is not natural, so, you know, something to that effect. Absolutely. And I was like, damn, like, right. Like I can't do that on my own. The composite skill. That's why, like, if you look into like a lot of so-called punishments in tribal societies, Oh, exile, dude, you're fucked. Dude, the worst. You are fucked. The worst. Yeah, Exactly. Because you're not, you're not this idea, like, yeah, like in a movie, oh, he's gonna go and do it himself. No, no, that's not happening. That's not fucking happening. Yeah. Or it's Exile 4. I mean, it reminds me, Planet of the Cave Bear, if you've ever read that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when, when Ayla mm -hmm. is essentially exiled for what is it, three months, six months, however long it is, yep. and it's terrible. She knows how to do it, but it fucking sucks. Yep. Right. And the coming back to a community, we are a gregarious social species. Right. And then there gets into the whole like, what is human nature? And, you know, I'm not super interested in those discussions, but there is no way we're not social. Totally. We are hardwired for it. And so the society that we have, atomizing, no one radical is going to disagree with that. I hope that we live in an atomized society. It destills us. Yeah. Right. We are fed shit food and again a lot of those well that's an individual choice i was like oh but this idea like a leftist might argue that it's like but you wouldn't argue that about like financial literacy mm -hmm. or like financial stability of a poor person because they're systematic yeah you can learn financial literacy to help yourself but you're ignoring the systemic issue at hand yeah right that same grace that we might give to a leftist is not given to us <laughs> as primitivists which is fucking you know hilarious right yeah yeah you know yeah. But yeah, I just I love all the all those levers, right? For me, I talk about it particularly since becoming a teacher is like education, right? There's no value, there's no redeeming the American education system or education generally. But what I love and I love reading about 
um, child rearing in, in hunter gatherer societies mm -hmm. is, is education is play and play is education and play is always, almost always just, I want to be an adult. I want to say, I want to do what they do, but in miniature. It's, it's right. so and the amount of the, auto the autonomy that comes with it is just so fucking insane. I've got a niece right now who's um, like three, three and a half and just, oh God, the love of my life. And it's so awesome to have, you know, been, you know, reading, you know, all this literature and being inspired by exactly what you're saying. And just, just sitting back and observing that phenomena, watching how mm -hmm. play is shaping her cognitive map of the world, right? And, you know, and it, you know, and I know that, you know, my brother and his partner, you know, there's, you can't, you can't avoid it, right? They, they both work. And so what are they, they are eventually going to send her to public school and she's going to, you know, be acculturated along with everyone else. But God, this sweet little moment that she's in right now, it's so, oh, it's so innocent. And you can see it. It's very primal. And it was a. Uh... And I'm re I'm rereading some Azur's name stuff on language. And I'm also reading Never in Anger. It's a portrait of an Eskimo family. Like this, there's something very like you look at a kid and just like they don't use like they don't they aren't they're so primal, right? This they haven't been beat, it hasn't been beaten out of them yet or right. suppressed. Yeah. That's what it is. And you know, I wrote this 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 essay called Spare the Child, mm. right? Like it's most obvious in colonization projects, right? right? The boarding school systems, right? Yeah. Like it will be, be it's not just you're going to be edged, it will be beaten out of you. Right. Because that's what you do to, that's what you do to domesticate. That's what you do to a horse. Yeah, right. Right. It, you have to exactly. break a horse. Yep. The same way you break a horse, you have to break a person. Yep. Yep. Kill the Indian, not right. the man. Or kill the man, not the Indian. Right. Or no, no, no. Kill the Indian, it, not the kill man. Kill the man, kill the man, kill the Indian, save the man. Right. Yes, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. Right, we fumbled so, our way, know, but we got there. That, yeah, thank you. <laughs> that that stuff is all very raw in Alaska. You know that, and and mm -hmm. but yet, like you say, not all of it was beaten out of everyone. You know, it, it is something that my partner and I remark upon so often when we were in. You know, and and these are very disparate cultures. You know that we visit. You know, there's like you know uh, coastal Yupik and Chupik. Interior, you know, Athabascan, Diné, uh, you know, Northern Inupiaq uh, um, cultures, you know, it's like not, they, they there are distinct language groups, you know, cultural identities, etc. But there, there's this common thing in each of those communities that we visit and spend time in is that is, you know, the, the uh, what was the title of the book? Never in Anger? Yeah, Never in Anger. Like that is still something mm -hmm. that you you still see. Children are granted tremendous leeway in a way that, you know, a, a modern Western family would be like, sit down, shut up, you know, or whatever, you know, or. Yeah, you know, I mean, the author's even mind. like, she looks at it. She looks at the child, the children. She's just like, what the fuck? She's like, I could never like a Kapluna, right? A white family. She's like, it just, it doesn't make sense. And like when the girl goes off to boarding school or it's not boarding school in the way we understand it from my from the way I understand what she's talking about, but she goes to a, a, a Western school and comes back. She's mm -hmm. like, adults yell at children and like hit each other. And I just don't get it. Right. Like, it's like, she just doesn't understand those types of social relations. Like, why would you yell at someone that makes a mistake? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. yeah. One and more so, piece. Yeah. I just, that's a puzzle that, 
Right. And that also reminds me, it's this one that also sticks with me, is it's this anthropology, it's this, oh, this found a couple of years ago now, it's uh, some Neanderthal, uh, Neanderthals in Europe, and they found these adult footprints that are on the shore, and these children's footprints, several sets of them in the water, and they're like playing, like you can tell like the movement of them isn't back and forth, they're like playing with each other in the water, yeah. and the adults are very obviously watching and walking that walking with them and watching them as they play and you're like dude that's it yeah oh yeah like you know what i mean it's not this orderly oh follow in line it's you know it's a beautiful i don't want to say the word innocence because people are going to misinterpret that but you know what i mean it's a certain freedom yep 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 primal primal anarchy that is just so wrong (laughs) right so i wanted to i guess we'll start to wind it down is i'm curious in what way like what what you talked about being hopeful uh, what are you seeing that, you know, that sparks your hope? Is there any projects going on right now that particularly have your interests that are, you know, indigenous decolonization projects, anarcho-primitivist, primal anarchy, whatever? Like, are there things that you point to that are like, that's why I'm hopeful? That's what I'm looking for. Um, well, in my own little community um, in Alaska, I I see, you know, people that like, kind of like almost following in the footsteps of maybe like what my parents were doing of finding, mm-hmm. finding their way out of the maze by, you know, by really actually engaging in the, their immediate needs, you know, removing, you know, this is something I've talked about for years is like, so, you know, at, at home, I chop wood. I don't have running water. I shit in an outhouse, the hole that I dug. I, you know, provide my own food. I still make my living with high-speed internet and a computer, but that's just because I have to balance, you know, like being able to pay the rent and whatever. Um, but uh, the the my my own philosophy has always been: if you if you can do the task yourself rather than make money to then pay for the thing that's that's a that's you know that that's always the better option so that's been like my philosophy you know my my entire life essentially um and and i'm seeing a lot of people uh, new people to alaska but then also that that's the that, that that is something that is kind of baked into a lot of people that live in alaska um you know living more immediate lifestyles where you know like look and 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 part of that too is developing community around that and i think that the pandemic actually had a bit of a positive influence on that phenomena you know there were you know food shortages and supply chain issues obviously um and i think people really started to wake up to the idea of food security and so more and more people are learning how to grow gardens how to catch fish, how to, you know, raise poultry, et cetera, et cetera, how to hunt even. Um, and so that's, you know, that's one example of where I'm seeing something. That, and it's not being, you know, I, none of these people, except for the ones that I've introduced to the idea, would call themselves primitivists or anarchists, but they're just inherently anarchists. <laughs> you know, they're, they're doing it in an, an anarchic way. Um, and, uh, um, so that's, you know, that's one kind of, you know, the, the thing that gives me hope. And then again, you know, having this weird lens into this weird, you know, like nutritional world 
I'm seeing a lot of people starting to make these connections similar to what I made. You know, once you do fix your metabolic, you know, dysfunction or your, you know, like, you, you know, your autoimmune disorder that you've lived with and you've been told that you're going to live with until you die and all of a sudden you fix that, you know, people that have lived with chronic, you know, arthritis and uh, they don't have arthritis anymore, it's like completely cured and they're living their normal life. I see a lot of those people kind of putting the dots to get, you know, starting to piece it together of like, wait a minute, it's civilization that's killing us. It's civilization and its inputs that are really destroying us. And we're being told by civilization, eat this way. And then when you get sick, take this, you know, prescription medication. And I think a lot of the cycle. Yeah, it's a it's a fucking brutal cycle. And people are breaking out of that when they break out of that. I think it can't but help people unclog, you know, their thinking to some degree. And and start so there I'm hopeful from that perspective that I'm saying a lot of people, once people get healthy, then they can start to think clearer and analyze the problem a little deeper. And uh and then another thing that I'm hopeful about is that there are a lot of you know, there's a lot of inroads that are being made in um you know landscape rewilding um you know th- these projects I think are immensely important and um you know my favorite one is the S- Siberian one called Pleistocene Park um but then all the work mm-hmm. that you know, Alan Savroy is doing you know so these things kind of give me a bit of hope but you know of course it's an uphill battle because you know the the majority of the people who are thinking about climate change are they're not critiquing civilization they're just trying to change the inputs they're like okay fossil fuels are obviously a bad thing so now what we need to do is replace them with something else and that's pretty fucking shallow um and destructive <laughs> And Alaska is really on the chopping block for that, right? Like things are accelerating. The minerals, the you know, the 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 rush to mine minerals for this energy transition is really being felt in Alaska, and it's like whack a mole. Mm-hmm. You know, like you know, like there's so many, there's like so few people that are really engaged in this issue in Alaska, and you know, and the, you can't, you you just cannot keep up with the amount of proposals that are really going to be devastating to the you know local environment and also the people who still directly rely on that local environment for their subsistence needs yeah right i guess i got i got two more questions for you uh the second to last one is you know and then maybe you don't have anything to say to this but i'm just curious is how do you compare and contrast your thought with other primitivists like zirzan you know jamie kevin and them do you find yourself in certain certain issues being kind of on an island do you think of yourself like in what way do you relate to those the, pe- the ideas that those people hold well an interesting one that i can speak to you know with um jamie because he's a buddy is that you know i feel like um that i'm experimenting a little bit more with the community side of things than him and and i mm-hmm. think that um you know, I, I don't think that he's like intentionally trying to alienate himself from community, but I think that being immersed a little bit more in in community has a has has an enormous positive, you know, effect on me. 
And and I hope that, you know, other primitivists find their way to that, you know, that can find, you know, a band of five or 10 people that you're, you know, doing, you know, doing this experiment of life with, because uh, it's not a, you know, it's not a solo mission. Um, you know, and I, and I just have nothing but deep admiration and respect for, you know, John. And I, and I hear him sometimes getting flack for just being kind of like the intellectual theorist of it uh, and not practical, you know, not doing any of the practical hands-on stuff and, you know, nothing but the deepest admiration for his scholarship, you know, um, and on this topic or these, this huge, uh, you know, array of topics. Um, but I do, I do think that a practical application is really worth um, delving into however you can do it and wherever you live. Like, I mean, I don't know that much about Peter Michael Bauer, but if you live in a city and you're doing a rewilding experiment, then that means it's somehow it's work. You know, he's doing, he's doing something good, you know, like if you can do it in Portland, then, you know, there's no excuse why you can't do it in wherever. Um, of course, you know, like I have it so good in Alaska, you know, because it hasn't been overpopulated and it hasn't, the resources, the resource base hasn't been, compromised you know too terribly um you know so the experiment is easier for me to uh conduct there but uh but in general i try to stay out of like you know i i'm always sad when i see you know like um you know, like i love bob black i think his writing is great and i don't necessarily think you know highly or that you know great of murray bookchin but i see t a, a tendency oftentimes within, you know, radical groups to implode upon themselves in infighting. And I just don't involve myself in that kind of shit at all. You know, like I, I, I don't, I just, I, go, I don't go there. Um, you know, I know a lot of people have negative opinions about Derek Jensen and Lear Keith for various reasons. I think they are, they've contributed, you know, more positive than whatever negative somebody might have to say about them. Um, it's not to say I give like blanket, you know, like, you know, um, you know, if, if you're a primitivist, I, you get away with murder, <laughs> you know, whatever. But, uh, you know, but I, I just try to avoid the bullshit and keep an eye on the kind of the bigger, you know, uh, message that we we need to develop a, a greater um, narrative. And if you don't mind, here's the kind of one, one of my other little soapboxes that I've been on. Um, the book Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. Uh, I think it does a great mm -hmm. job of helping you know, the person that has never really, you know, it's a mainstream book, you know, a New York Times bestseller kind of guy. And he does a really good job of landing a few planes in that book. And one of them is that we're a storytelling species and that yeah. you know, religion and, you know, economy, the economy, the global economy that we're all now a part of is one of the most successful stories that we've ever come up with. And we all know even it doesn't matter what spectrum of the political you know side you're on everybody knows to some degree that this is a pretty fucking destructive and ultimately you know suicidal um model or myth but we all are still engaged in it because there's nothing better you know there's nothing come along that's better and i contend that the anarcho primitivist critique has the potential to tell a better story that would help people divorce themselves from this very destructive myth that we all believe in, the economy, 
when we return to the more uh, the, the more human original kind of human, as Jamie always says, human 1.0 story, we get, we don't, we don't get as much material wealth. We don't get, you know, access to, you know, streaming Netflix every night or, you know, driving, uh, you know, 200 miles to go visit somebody for the weekend. You know, like you, you have to give that kind of shit up, but what you get in return is much greater than anything that you, you, that this material world does provide for you our materialistic world, I should say. And, and so I'm very hopeful that that, you know, that we don't implode upon ourselves in this, you know, melu, this critique, this, you know, kind of, uh, you know, philosophy space um, in getting too locked into like, oh, well, you think that, you know, if you're a vegan, then I can't be friends with you because I'm a carnivore, bullshit like that. Um, we, we should all be working to try to create this better story <laughs> you know that's the future you know the john's you know talks about you know um future primitivism you know we're gonna have to we're gonna have to we're gonna have to come up with a better story than what the dominant culture is selling right now and i and i've never right the whole you know the mother culture and the story that mother culture as daniel quinn puts it kind of tells us you know that tells us in the back of our ears it's not always visible in there but it's it's laid throughout everything that we know and hear and speak. Absolutely. Yes. I'm so glad you used that term because I love it so much. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And the other kind of a follow up before the last question. Oh, sorry. Go on. Go on. Well, I'm just going to say one other Quinn thing that really has always struck with me is the term, the great forgetting, you know, that we, we, didn't, yes. we, we didn't learn, you know, to start writing until we were already in the civilizational, you know, project. And so we, our whole mythology has been based upon you know, an agricultural civilizational model. And yet millions of years happened before then that we're only kind of just now starting to appreciate all of the value that that has. And, you know, that term, the great forgetting, I just think is, it's so well put. It, it really kind of, you know, it captures so much of where my headspace is at, is remembering yeah. what we have forgotten. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And I guess a follow up to that question, then the last one is where do you think primitivism, primal anarchy, anti civ anarchy generally are going? And are you hopeful for it? Or do you think there's a lot of critique that needs to be had about where it's at and where it's going? Well, I'll tell you, you know, like you, you and your cadre, you know, are an example of, you know, re a reason why to hope, you know, that there are, you know, young you know, 20 somethings in, you know, <laughs> you know, the United States, you know, getting together and having you know, similar conversations, I think is awesome. And, but the, but the problem is, is that I am such an outsider, you know, I'm such a, you know, you know, besides Jamie and, you know, a couple other people in Alaska, um, you know, I, I just have no, I have no scene, you know, there's no scene so I don't really know, you know, but I'm, I'm hopeful, you know, when I read the zines and, you know, Oak Journal and your zine and, you know, other publications that are coming out. Um, but it, it doesn't seem like, you know, it seems like there's a lot of uh, pushback in the mainstream anarchist world, you know, to this critique, you know, that we're still caught in kind of basically, you know, Marxist ideals and, you know, uh, syndicalism and such, you know, um, but yeah, but I, I, I'm, I still, I, I want to be hopeful. 
I, I want to believe that, you know, that they're, you know, and in the way, so here's another thing is that, you know, there are all these other authors that aren't in this exact space, but that also make such similar kind of, you know, conclusions. And so, you know, that Darcia, um, what is her last name? It's the, um, the Evolved Nest book. Um, you know, they're, they're just, they're, oh, yes, we talked about that. Um, Navarez, Navarez, something like that. that Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course, we talked about that with, uh, when Jessica was on. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course, you know, the, the, sorry, I totally just spoke over you. Oh no. uh, Just saying, you know, that there are, you know, countless indigenous voices, you know, in, in our world, you know, all over, you know, including in the US and Canada, that are, you know, they're, they're not calling themselves anarcho primitivists, they're calling themselves human beings, you know, they're saying these are our values. And you you cannot have an open pit mine here, you cannot have your oil pipeline run through my land, you know, we want our autonomy back. So, you know, I, you know, hopefully, hopefully that in re-indigenizing happens, you know, everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I have right. no idea. I have no, yeah. I have no reason yeah. to hope or not because you know the mainstream is pretty grim. Mm-hmm. Even the ones that are solutions oriented. Yeah, I mean that's kind of the problem too. Is that Jamie we talked about? Sometimes I forget if it was in the episode or in the hour conversation before and after the episodes. But you kind of talked about how like you get these academics and writers, kind of like who you're talking about, and they're right there. And John talks about this too. And right at the end, they cut it. It's like, oh, well, we can't go back. So fuck it. You know, these are just lessons, I guess, you know, and it's like, fuck, dude, like you're right there. Yeah. And in some way, I think, well, it's it's beneficial for some people that but that but we can't go back because you've bought it. You've sold this idea and all these lessons, but then you cut the most important part. Yeah. And I think that does incredible damage. Yep. Yep. It's unfortunate. it's, It's irresponsible. Well, and, you know, but I don't I don't think it comes from a place of, um, you know, this like ideological supremacy or something. I just think that people have not. They they just feel so captured, you know, so domesticated that they they just really honestly cannot imagine it. And, yeah, I try to be I try to be empathetic with that, um, but it is also frustrating. Agreed. Agreed. So I guess the last question is, how can people kind of keep up with your work? How can they support the work that you do if that's something that you're interested in people paying attention to? Sure. Um, yeah, the website is, this, you know, I, I, I chose it. I, you know, Nordic Ancestry. And so, you know, the uh, uh, Thor's Hammer, Mjolnir, I used to always carry my camera around my neck and it just looked like a Mjolnir. So that's the genesis of mm. Mjolnir of Bjorn, uh, but Mjolnir, M-J-O-L-N-I-R of Bjorn.com is my website. And I, I'm not always the best about, you know, updating, but I do, you know, I, recent writings and uh, um, film projects and photography is up there. Um, and then I have two, you know, I, yeah, social media is, um, what is my shit? Um, yeah, Facebook is Bjorn Olson, just Bjorn Olson, I think, right? And then, uh, 
Instagram is, let me make sure I get this right. I should know this, but I don't. It is Fat Bike Bjorn on Instagram. Yeah. Fat Bike Bjorn? Yeah, Fat, F A T, Bike Bjorn, B J O R N. Gotcha. Yep. Gotcha. Very cool. All right. And you also mentioned you're working on a writing project. Can you, can we get a, a peek into what that is? I mean, we kind of were uh, talking about all the things today. So, you know, mm. you know, it's kind of like, I want to, I want to land, I want to try to connect those two positions, right? That there, that there are these two, right, right, right. yeah, that there are these two kind of uh, compete. They're not competing. I, I think that they're just siloed right now. So we've got this ancestor. Well, they're parallel, right? They're, par- they're parallel ten- ex- tendencies. Exactly. And so to, to try to create a sense of hope in people is that, you know, by fixing, you know, by fixing these, you know, physical aspects of ourselves, then we can do a better job of fixing the planet. But if we have, you know, metabolically and, you know, emotionally rot, rot people, you know, that that's that's not going to help. You know, you need to get you, we need to become healthy ourselves first. And that's kind of one of those, you know, native, you know, native, pretty generic. But I think it comes from the four corners um, or the four arrows book that is that responsibility has a hierarchy. And that's like the, the, the first that is hierarchy, you know, the hierarchical order of responsibility is responsibility first to yourself then your family, then your community, then your nation, then your world. And if you think about it inversely, or you think about the contemporary, you know, kind of world we live in, a lot of times people that have, you know, compassion and care, you know, they, they start, you know, on the state or the national or the international level and don't think about themselves first. And, you know, so many of the people that I work with in the environmental world, like they don't have those, they don't eat wild food. They don't get outside every day. You know, they're stuck in offices and they're, you know, they're not healthy. (laughs) You know, I don't think that you can save the world if you don't know how to save yourself first. Mm. So, yeah, anyway, trying to land that point. And, you know, and like I said, you know, like um, try to help create a new myth you know, a new story that we can tell each other that right. is inspiring. Yeah, I appreciate that because, you know, I think so many people are like, and I was talking to Steve Kirk about this. He's like, you know, so many people like to say, oh, that's just a story. It's like everything's just a fucking story. Absolutely. If you think otherwise, <laughs> you're, you know, obviously we tend to side with the fact ours is correct, right? But they're all just stories and we're competing they're competing stories, right? You know, liberalism is a story. Marxism is a story. Primitivism is a story. These are all stories, right? Fascism, right? And you can talk about how is primitivism an ideology, and I, I, I don't, I don't tend to get into that because I, I think a lot of it is just kind of like I get like it's important discussion, but some of it kind of comes off like semantics, and so I don't mean to equate like anarcho-primitivism serves the same function as like fascism or Marxism in in daily people's lives, but you know. I think it's the most radical to me. It's the most radical story that we can tell. Yeah. There's a, we didn't talk at all about John Gowdy uh, um, on this podcast, but wow, what a uh, profound and important thinker he is. He has this uh, Mm -hmm. presentation um, on online. That's called uh, why complex societies need simple individuals. And I just love that so much. Mm -hmm. Just that title alone, I think speaks volumes. Um, You know, that, yeah. Yep. 
Mm-hmm. Anyway. Gotcha. Well, Billy Warren, this episode's been great. We talked about a lot. I have no idea what the fuck we're going to title it. Uh, there's, <laughs> I don't think any title's going to capture all the things we talked about. Yeah. Uh, but this has been great. It's, it touched on so much more than I anticipated. And I want to say, you know, thank you for coming on. This this was awesome. Artemis, it's such a pleasure. I, I, I really am in deep gratitude for all you're doing. And, you, you know, yeah, you, you give me hope and inspiration. That's great to hear. I, I mean, I try. Sometimes I'm like, damn, it's just a podcast. But then I get people who like email me that like your podcast is so fucking important. I'm like, oh, my God, I, I got to keep doing it. I can't stop the podcast. I can't keep the, I can't stop it now. People are people care about it. Yeah. Great. <laughs> That's wonderful. Keep it up. Yeah. Well, this is oh, I, I will try. Well, this has been the Uncivilized podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>